Costume Drama Rewind with your hosts, Laura Skog and Megan Jett. This marks our first round of the Joe March Madness Tournament, and today we're reviewing the 1933 and 1949 versions of the beloved classic story. The 1933 version was directed by George Cukor, and it stars Katherine Hepburn as Joe, Jean Parker as Beth, an extremely pregnant Joe Bennett as Amy, who's supposed to be 12, <laughs> Francis D. as Meg, Douglas Montgomery, who looks a bit like David Walliams, as Laurie, and Spring Byington as Marmy. The 1944 version was directed by Mervyn Leroy. Leroy? Leroy? It stars Janet Leigh as... Lee? vowels are hard today it stars janet lee's meg june allison's joe elizabeth taylor as amy and margaret o'brien as beth mary astor plays marmy and peter lawford plays laurie watching these two movies back to back perhaps was not the best idea (laughs) since the 1949 is practically word for word shot for shot remake of the 1933. At precisely the one hour and 13 minute mark of the second movie, we both looked at each other at the same time and asked, how many of these do we agree to watch? It was really painful. There's whimpering. And booze. Booze or booze Either one. (laughs) In both movies, all the younger characters are played by actors that are at least a decade too old. And, like, both the movies have the same actor, Olin Hallen, playing Amy's school teacher, and he even wears the exact same costume the second time around. Do you mean the actual same clothes? No, I mean, like, when they finished filming the 1933, they hung him up on the clothes racks, wheeled it into the warehouse, and then unlocked the door 16 years later to do 1949. And he was really hungry. (laughs) Both Amy's, uh, Joan Bennett and Elizabeth Taylor, are just tarted up with the popular makeup of their day. And both Professor Bears sound Italian, even though the actor in 1933 was Hungarian. So basically, the two movies are fairly indistinguishable in my head, even if the 1949 is in Technicolor. So if we mix up anything during this analysis about the two movies, it's not our fault. And with that, let's get right into the judging, which is really our greatest strength. You might remember from the teaser trailer that our first dimension on which we're scoring these movies, we're calling Little Faithful, scoring them according to how faithful they were to the original text. Total, utter, complete, obsessive faithfulness, in one sense, is what these movies have to recommend them. Happily, I committed most of the text of Little Women to memory many years ago, which came in super handy throughout both movies as I was able to provide Laura with a running update of how completely the script was lifting all of its dialogue from the book word for word. Unfortunately, as the directors must have figured out at some point, doing that with each of your first five or so scenes leaves you with no time to fit anything else in. So in both movies, a few early scenes are recreated in loving detail, and then we get a Cliff's Notes version of a few high points to take us through the entire rest of the story. Yeah, there were some deviations from the text that stood out for me. Like both 1933 and 1949, the dance that Meg and Joe go to early on in the film, that's at the Lawrence's, not the Gardner's. And Beth and Amy tag along in the movies. Uh, this change does allow the screenwriters to get Beth's first meeting with Mr. Lawrence out of the way quicker so we can keep moving in the plot. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Just move. Just go. <laughs> and then, like, neither version shows Amy getting hit across the hand with a ruler for bringing pickled limes, which frankly do sound disgusting, to school. Like, the corporal punishment's left out entirely, and instead she's getting punished for drawing a rude picture of the teacher. 
And just like the actor, it's the exact same picture. So in the 1949 version, Beth comes back from the Hummels with her scarlet fever, looking like she has just killed a man in Concord just to watch him die. Stay away from me! I realize that it's supposed to have been a haunting and dreadful experience for little Beth, but she overplayed it to the extent that it just ends up being really funny. A common thread of these movies is that everyone kind of overplays their parts in a way that reflects both the transition from stage to screen and that the naturalistic school of acting hadn't yet arrived, but given that everyone's character traits are already kind of exaggerated in the original text, we end up getting a lot of melodrama, even for a house full of teenagers. (laughs) It's also possible that in the 1933 version, Joan Bennett's pregnancy hormones are making her so emotional. Something else that a lot of commentaries pointed out is that in the 1949 version, Beth is the youngest instead of Amy. They did this specifically because they wanted to use Margaret O'Brien, who was the resident crying child actor of Hollywood, and she was like 12 at the time they made the film. So clearly having an 18-year-old Liz Taylor trying to play Amy as the youngest would not have worked, and it already was not working that well. She has kind of a Nellie Olsen vibe about her for the whole thing. It's so much makeup. One of the other random deviations from the original plot that's included in both movies has Joe going to New York solely to escape her confusion over Lori's proposal and her rejection of it. While she's in New York, Aunt March and Amy rock up to the boarding house (laughs) and announce that they're going to Europe together. Joe's obviously surprised and put out, but it has less impact than in the book when she sets off for New York, not only because she's confused about Lori, but also despondent about missing her long-expected trip to Europe, which would have taken her away from all her romantic dramas. This might be a little bit minor, but I do think it's cool Catherine Hepburn had the costume department make the dress she wears to the opera based on a dress her grandmother wore in one of those old-timey photos years ago. But it's definitely clear she's not wearing a corset, and that annoyed me. And it's definitely out of the range for a working girl's paycheck. I think this in general is a real weakness of both films when you talk about the dress. The marches are pretty poor. That's obviously a huge plot point for the entire book. And their house and possessions and clothing would have been fairly plain. But a lot of the setting and costuming for both movies really fails to convey that. So many expensive knickknacks. They love their (laughs) knickknacks. Overall, for Little Faithful, I almost have to give both movies a 10 out of 10 for their obsessive faithfulness. But I'm going to knock it down to a 7 for both, just because recreating the first few chapters of the book in such deep detail leaves the rest of the story so shortchanged. Yeah, I'm going to go with 7 for the 1933 for the same reasons, but for 1949, I'm giving it a 6. So now we move on to artistic attempts as we rate each director's creative stamp on the story. (laughs) What creative stamp? In terms of effects and camera work, it's all pretty standard for the time. Like the intro credits are pretty bland, nostalgic, home vibe title cards. The 1933 has a picture of the girl's house, which was modeled on the Alcott's place with snow falling outside. And the 1949 has the candy box lid sampler look of a yard for the title card. And made me really crave a good old Whitman sampler. Everything that they film definitely looks like it was built for a set, especially with the 1933. And in keeping with the times, there's a lot of that old-timey movie Vaseline filter going on for all of Catherine Hepburn's close-ups. But sometimes they're a little too fuzzy. There really isn't much of an individual director stamp on either movie, but by far the weirdest artistic decision that both movies make is to have the opening scenes, covering a very March family Christmas, go on for more than half an hour. (laughs) 
All the rest of the events of the book have to get a quick gloss with all but the most essential scenes dropped because we use up more than a quarter of the runtime just on basically a two-day period. The director of the 1949 version even adds an extra scene to the Christmas sequence where the girls invade the local general store and totally annoy the heck out of its proprietor and patrons who still somehow seem to find them charming. <laughs> because of this, the list of important scenes that we don't get to is huge. Most critically, we do not get to see the great book burning of 1860-whatever, <laughs> a moment that set most of us implacably against the character of Amy March, or horror, frankly, totally deserved almost drowning on the nearby skating pond. She was 12. We also don't get the classic Meg goes to Vanity Fair scene in which she goes off to a friend for two weeks to attend her coming out ball and experience her first hangover. Or basically have fun for the first time ever. <laughs> or the Pickwick Society, a scene that was profoundly confusing to me when I was eight and hadn't discovered Dickens, but it's still really great. We also just end up missing a lot of the color of their lives, given the imperative to get through the rest of the plot as quickly as humanly possible. Most of the memorable scenes in the book are the episodes in which the girls get into weird situations that also establish their character. So we really just don't get much of a 3D take on them. The movies are really straightforward plot-driven stories without a lot of the learning experiences and moral lessons that are so much a part of Little Women. Yeah. Another huge thing I noticed was how each adaptation reflects the time in which it's made. Take the 1933 movie, which came out during the Great Depression. Beverly Lyon Clark's book, The Afterlife of Little Women, which I've been reading for background research and all of this, talks about how the film portrayed a family that's struggling to get by, just like the audience that would have been seeing it, but they managed to transcend external problems like poverty with their tight-knit family, their values, and their love. And there's definitely a huge nostalgia sub-theme running through the movie, which she points out had many critics praising its callback to a simpler time and I'm not kidding. This is what a critic from back then actually said, an era which made America great. Anyway, based on when it came out in the 30s, probably a lot of the audience members who were adults remember times before a lot of the new fangled technology, modern jazz age, zeitgeist, and of course, before World War I, which helped change everything. The 1949 version introduces Laurie as having run away from boarding school and joining the Union Army where he meets John Brooke and then gets wounded. It doesn't explain the, why Brooke's able to leave the front lines just to become a tutor or why he insists on wearing his uniforms at, like, all times. Stolen valor. <laughs> like, he's wearing it when he's just bebopping around town. But this movie came out right after World War II, so it makes sense that the filmmakers would have included these sort of touches. And let's be honest, Laurie looks like he could have been a soldier years before. Laurie looks 45 <laughs> and is also the least attractive male in this film. For some reason, the most attractive male in this film is Mr. March, which I did not anticipate. <laughs> okay. But I want to point out that John Brooke moves way faster in these movies than in the book. He and Meg are paying calls together really early on, which is a very forward domestic gesture. He's still in his uniform for these <laughs> social calls on their neighbors in the middle of the afternoon, but whatever. The John Brooke of these movies is still not very appealing, but he's definitely not just mooning about translating German songs from Meg and gazing at her from the windows and stealing her personal possessions. Freak so it's, it's a step. The Afterlife book, which I'm going to call it from here on out, <laughs> uh, it points out that the 1949 movie has this rosy, more domestic post-war gloss, and it's in Technicolor. 
Like, they mention the girls working in one scene, but they never actually show them working. And Laurie seems, like, super pissed at the very idea of Joe becoming a writer. Which is really not canon, because in the book, he's thrilled at her first publishing contract. He's throwing up his hat in the air and cheering her in the middle of the street. And especially in, yeah, in the 1949 movie, he's really not okay with it. Yeah, old man Laurie is not happy. (laughs) He's a real square. (laughs) June Allison as Joe isn't as over-the-top physical like Katherine Hepburn was, and that derpy shopping scene you mentioned, it really highlights the focus on post-war consumerism. Although at the same time, Joe pretty much treats that shop the way Belle would later treat the bookshop in her town in Beauty and the Beast, where the bookstore is basically just her personal lending library. Uh. (laughs) I have questions about how any of these places stay open, but it's also interesting to me how the different versions handle Joe's eventual publishing success that also conveniently brings the professor back into her life. In the book, she writes a lovely long poem called In the Garret, publishes it on her own, and then the professor just knows her so well that when he sees it in published form, signed only with her initials, he knows that it's hers, and he realizes from reading it how desperately lonely she is, and he goes to find her. That's the dream, right, ladies? In the 1933 and 1949 movies, it's a little bit less romantic. She writes a book telling her family story and sends it off to the professor to use his publishing contacts. And he shows up to give her the good news that it will be published, and I guess hope that she falls into his arms (laughs) at the news, which she does. This latter plotline is the one that tends to get used by the various film versions, and it's probably more straightforward and realistic, but I prefer the book version in all of its adorable romanticism, and perhaps I can be persuaded to give a dramatic recitation of In the Garret for a future episode. Uh Uh-huh. Get excited. Uh For artistic attempts, I'm giving the 1933 version a two. Because there really are no artistic (laughs) attempts. And I'm going to give the 1949 version a four, because at least they tried. (laughs) Well, I was going to be nice, since back then they were limited in what they could do uh, filming-wise, and give the 1933 a four, but I've knocked off a point since then for the extremely fuzzy and distracting close-ups, so that's a three. And for 1949, I'm going with a three as well, because of freaking John Brooke and his stupid uniform. Wow. Finally, we come to Joe's journal, in which we're ranking the overall quality of the Joe character. I'm going to say the thing that you're not supposed to say and hope she doesn't haunt me. I was at first bewildered and then profoundly unimpressed by Katherine Hepburn's version of Joe. Because here's the thing. In the first half, she's perfect. She's loud and she's brash and she's incredibly physical in her portrayal. She's just this giant ball of gangly energy. And then the second half of the movie arrives, and I scrawled in my notes in a couple of different spots... Is she high right now? It's all that Vaseline filter. For some reason, she decided to play Joe in the second half of the movie in a practically catatonic state. Other than one non-canonical storm of weeping in Professor Bear's room, Joe moves through everything that happens to her in the second half of the 1933 movie, from Laurie's proposal to Beth's death, with a blank expression on her face and really no visible reaction. There's a lot that's been made, especially in some of the more modern versions, of Joe's pretty dark mental state towards the end of the story, when Beth is gone and Laurie has abandoned her for Amy. But this isn't that. This is the entire second half of the movie, with Joe flitting from scene to scene, having no visible reaction to anything that's happening to her. Yeah, you're not alone. Uh, the Afterlife book uh, <laughs> notes that. The Afterlife of Catherine Hepburn as she haunts me. 
Yeah, the book notes a lot of the more noticeable physicality Catherine Hepburn displays, like her sword fighting with Laurie, the sliding down of Aunt March's banister, climbing out windows, etc. isn't even in the book. Another book uh, written by Anne Boyd Rue, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters, says that Hepburn herself understood the character as requiring an exaggerated theatrical performance. The result is that she overwhelms the role rather than disappearing into it. Her transformation from an unnaturally boyish young woman with an affected low voice into a wistful, dewy-eyed girl with a high, soft voice swooning over Professor Bear is also jarring. Neither Joe rings true. And can we talk about how Catherine Hepburn is basically jutting out her bosom in Professor Bear's face while he's at the piano? Hey, there are future versions of Professor Bear that we're going to see that I'm probably going to swoon over. Just preparing you for that eventuality. <laughs> yeah, I made some notes when we were watching about what Catherine Hepburn has going on for her. And my notes are basically like, she's famously from New England. The Turner Classic Movie website's write-up of the movie really harps on her flinty New England independence. And that she's the perfect embodiment of her brisk New England strength. So, okay. Uh, June Allison did get dinged by critics because they thought she was doing a bad, lukewarm imitation of Catherine, which I think does show just like how much the public views Catherine Hepburn with the character of Joe. I guess it's kind of like with uh, Agatha Christie, a lot of people think of David Suchet as the Poirot for all time. June Allison does do her share of pratfalls, like jumping over fences, running everywhere, climbing out windows, but she's just much more even keel than Catherine. June Allison appears to be awake in the second half (laughs) of the movie, so that is to be an improvement. High bar. She brings a lot of the same physicality and energy to the role, but without that wildly uneven swing from the first half to the second half. Both of them do have weird bangs, though. With With that important (laughs) note out of the way, for Joe's Journal, I'm awarding Catherine Hepburn 6 out of 10, mostly on the strength of the first half, and June Allison a surprise 7 out of 10. Okay. I'm going to go with 7 for Catherine, because she did set that standard for so many critics, and also because with all that brisk New England independence and strength, she could rise from the grave and kill me if I give her any lower. (laughs) (laughs) Um, June Allison, I'm going to give an 8. Because I think she's much more consistent with her portrayal. And I gotta say, I was really impressed that a pregnant three one-year-old managed to be so buoyant and with such terrible bangs. You're taking the bangs really personally. And with that, that means that I am awarding the 1933 version of Little Women 15 points and the 1949 version a total of 18 points so that it is in fact June Allison moving on in my Joe March Madness bracket. Okay. Um, my results are for 1933, 17, and for 1949, also 17. So um, I'm going to be subjective right now. And I'm going to give an extra point to 1933 because it felt shorter. We maybe <laughs> just had more caffeine in our systems at that point. <laughs> Before we wrap up, we do want to update our running actor count. Catherine Hepburn is making her second appearance on the podcast following her recent and frankly much more compelling appearance in The Lion in Winter as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Shh, I can hear you. Oh God, I'm sorry. Please don't haunt me. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Costume Drama Rewind. We will be back next time for the second round of Joe March Madness when we will be reviewing that classic of our adolescence, the 1994 version with Winona Ryder as Joe, as well as the 2017 BBC miniseries with Maya Hawke playing Joe. This is Costume Drama Rewind. Thanks for listening to Joe March Madness.